The Consequences podcast with Paul McNulty, Sean McCreevy and special guest Mike Ferreri. Welcome everyone to our third instalment of Godly and Cream in the 80s. We're joined once again by Paul up in Liverpool and by the wonderful Mike Ferreri in California. Hello chaps. Hello. Hi, Sean. Hello there. Here comes the golden boy. Eyes turn to follow. I find this golden handshake hard to swallow. So, in Wide Boy style, Godly and Cream released a single in between the two albums. And in this case, after Birds of Prey came out in 83, and History Mix in 85, we had one single, uh, and I'm, I'm sitting here looking at the 12-inch single of it at the moment, Golden Boy, with a, a, a gorgeous-looking bloke on, on the front wearing a very 80s suit, smoking a, a cigarette, lit in bright gold. I have to say, not, not a single I uh, particularly like. Any thoughts, gents? I like Golden Boy as a, as a song, as a melody, um, not one of their strongest and it's certainly a great video. Uh, outside of that, yeah, I don't really have a whole lot to say. The, the video's weird, isn't it? Um, yes, but interesting, very watchable. Yeah, uh, very godly and cream, isn't it? The fact that the camera never moves mm-hmm. and that it's just one idea kind of drained of, of, of all of its potential and meaning. They, they like to force you to watch the same thing for three minutes, don't they? Yes, they 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 do, Sean. You're right, but that that idea of one central uh, concept, which which they string out to the entire song, it, it either stands or falls. And when it works, it works brilliantly. I quite like the relentlessness of the way they pound an idea, or they yes. they they what they won't move a camera for you. You're mm. fixed looking at this image. interesting because it seems to have like bits of another video which might even have been a sort of a discarded attempt or something yeah. a more conventional you know dressing up character based video which occasionally appears you know enlarged in that editor scope or whatever it is yes so exactly as, 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 they, the, as the as the celluloid goes round and round the editing machine yeah you, you see kind of a, yeah. a standard uh, kind of 80s looking Duran Duran style video don't you kind of coming up on screen yeah which looks awful I, love, I wonder whether they kind of went back so, to the drawing board Mike and, are you and, typing uh, sorry sorry I thought I'd cheat <laughs> and watch the video while you're typing remember we can, we can hear everything we can hear son of a bitch I didn't a, any, that any sound you know whether it's he's you ordering. taking a puff on your pipe or anything he's ordering a pizza <laughs> All right, I swear I will stay completely still like a statue. Yeah, yeah. He's looking up the weather report for for California, which, which will be inevitably a bit warmer than the UK. Put it that way. Yes. Yeah. Oh, I'm so sorry. I, I just no problem. Sneak leave, it in. leave that in, Sean. It's quite funny. <laughs> okay. Uh, sorry, Paul. What were you What were you saying before we were rudely interrupted? Well, well no. <laughs> I didn't want to get too off track talking about the video, but going, I mean, it is what it is. But going back to the song, Golden Boy's interesting. It, it's pretty strong. Lyrically, it's got this thing which seems to be a bit of a theme with Kevin talking about a kind of alpha male. That yes. He's, you know, one part envious of and one part, mm. you know, dislikes, if you like. Mm-hmm. The, the, the girl's going to go with the Golden Boy, you know. To put it in its simplest terms, I suppose. Which of course harks you, back to um, to Wide Boy and Worm and the Rattlesnake, doesn't it? Yeah, and exactly, exactly. Uh, I do. It's, it's an interesting melody. It sounds like a sounds like a lull melody to me, or has elements of a, a lull construction. Okay. And uh, the production sounds like they were kind of going for a hit because, correct me if I'm wrong, that is this the first time they'd employed female backing singers. Um, to just kind of give that that commercial sound, I think um, so. 
that's that's the impression. It's, and it's a near, it wasn't a hit, but it's a sort of a uh, a near miss. If you yeah, it's close. Like it's yeah, it. yeah, it's a, it's a a nice song. Um, yeah, it's, and it's very soulful. The BVs, um, the the girls, the girls' vocals are very very soulful, aren't they? Yeah. Uh, and and Kev's putting a lot of effort into the lead vocal, even though I'm not keen on it actually. Um, mm-hmm. I find he's he's trying a bit too hard, perhaps. He's almost going into his kind of operatic style on this one, and I don't think the song's got an awful lot of substance uh, to justify it being a hit. Really, um, it, it kind of it annoys me after a while. Even though I like the intro with that lovely drum <laughs> machine that sounds a bit like Heart of Glass by by Blondie, yeah, or uh, or even. Visage's Fade to Grey it's promising and I, you know, that pricks my ears up but after after three or four minutes I'm just I'm ready for it to just disappear um, uh, I, I'm not I'm not sure that this was a near hit well I mean in, in my ears it is I think it's a nice song it, it's I prefer it to most of the stuff barely all of the stuff on Birds of Grey to be honest okay he's seated now and almost ready to begin Lead me in with a count of 17, Mr. Stapleton. Then wave your baton. Uh, one, two, three, four. Die. We come to an album which utterly divides the nation, doesn't it? Um, I, know, I know many more 10cc fans who hate the very ground that History Mix walks on compared with those who I, I claim myself to be part of, who kind of stand up in support. Where do you both stand on, on the, the interesting, controversial work that is History Mix? Well, uh, I, I'm okay with, like, Wet Rubber Soup. It's a fun romp through their um, musical history. I love hearing them mash rubber bullets, and I'm not in love and Minestrone together, and throwing some consequences in here and there. It's no harm. It's no harm. It's a real treat to listen to on headphones. Yep. Uh, if nothing more, it is definitely well recorded. And, and they deserve to get a little more mileage out of these great pieces. They're not, obviously not traveling through any new musical terrain. Um, this really falls into my Godling Cream could do no wrong category. Never think about it. Well, uh, I think uh, I'm going to quote, uh, I can't remember whether this is Kev or Lowell, but I dug out a quote recently, and this was from right around the time of History Mix, when they said, or one of them said, we had to deliver a new album we had zero songs written, and we weren't remotely in, in the mood to write any. And I think that says it all. Uh, another way of saying um, what I feel about History Mix is great single, awful album. Mm. It's just a load of ingredients thrown into mm-hmm. a mixer or sing clavier, is it? And and uh, they got this other guy, JJ, uh, somebody to, to kind of mix it together. Yeah, JJ I mean, Jesselik. Right. I mean... I remember History Mix was coming out and I was really excited and I saw the artwork, those great cartoons they mm. drew of each and it was kind of um, very much packaged as as a 25th anniversary of their incredible artistic collaboration yeah. and and they and they come out with this, I'm, I'm sorry it's, uh, you know, apart from Cry, which we'll obviously talk about separately, mm. which, which saves the record mm. and then some no, it's, I don't know how they got away with it, to be honest. I went to a party at the county jail. All the cons were dancing, they began to wear. They were in the street, dancing in the street, but that was indiscreet. I know. It explains uh, a lot, it, yeah. It, 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 seen, from, seen from 2020, I, I 100% see exactly what you're saying there, Paul, because <laughs> it, it really has not stood the test of time well. But at the time, there were a large number of people, and, and myself included, who like that sort of music. Uh, and, and I'd like to talk a little bit about where the project kind of was, was engendered, how it came about and so on, and some of the characters that were involved behind the scenes 
in, in, putting, yeah, in putting those things together. I, I really, uh, I was really interested, Paul, in what you were saying about Lol or Kev saying that they, they didn't really have anything in the can that they could be bothered to resurrect. It reminds me of a, a quote I read on the old, I think now defunct Minestrone site, mm-hmm. um, where it was a, a brief interview with Lowell Cream, who was talking about his attitude to making music in the 80s. And what he said was, um, we, we simply could not be asked. We couldn't be bothered to think about music. We were 100% about video and music just didn't excite us one iota. That always dis- disturbs me. We've talked about that before. We see Kevin and Lowell, we see Eric and Graham as these great musicians and songwriters that we hero worship. And uh, to hear them look down on a musical career kind of takes the shine off a little bit, doesn't it? And I can totally understand why anybody would be listening to History Mix and thinking, these boys are taking the piss out of us. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I don't mind that attitude. I- I mean, that's a more honest attitude if they were fed up with it. And if they hadn't been, you know, in a, in a contractual situation, they probably just wouldn't have released anything. Mm. Um, and they almost did that. I mean, they the thing I most sort of disagree with in terms of the album, it, it's not their work, is it? I mean, I don't mind that the sounds are dated, but they, they, they just fed in a load of tapes or gave a load of tapes to this other guy as yeah. I understand it and he mixed the ingredients as they put it yeah that's so right JJ JJ uh, Jesselik was the only musician on this record <laughs> so it's not even their work is it so they've abdicated you know uh, their position as artists. I mean, please give me a bit more history about the record because I might be wrong, but that's that's the way I see yeah, it. Yeah, but but that was a that was a very prevalent thing at the time. And I, I, if if you can indulge me, I'd like to to just tell you a little bit about my understanding of, of how this this came into being. Um, sure. Obviously, Kevin and Lol had rubbed shoulders with Trevor Horn uh, at the very least around filming the video for Two Tribes with Frankie Goes to Hollywood in. I presume in, in 84, probably quite early in 84. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I wonder if, if that association went back any further, but obviously Lowell in later years, having joined the, the Trevor Horn band, um, and prior to that had joined Art of Noise as well, who we'll, we'll come on to. For me, yeah. the whole Trevor Horn and his record company ZTT and the associated, the, the first signing on ZTT Records was... Uh, a band, for want of a better word, called Art of Noise, which was uh, a three-piece band made up uh, with uh, engineer and producer Gary Langan, programmer uh, of the Fairlight and uh, computer software called J.J. Jesselik, and a classically trained composer and and pianist called Anne Dudley. That was the the three-piece band. And Trevor Horn, the already well-known producer, uh, came in to kind of contribute to that, that musical project. Um, he also brought in a chap called Paul Morley, who was uh, a journalist and um, very creative thinker, who was um, behind all of the philosophy of ZTT, some of those amazingly pretentious and wonderful publicity campaigns uh, of Frankie Goes to Hollywood, for example, you know, uh, Frankie says, you know those T-shirts. That was yep. that was all Paul Mor- Paul Morley's work. Very very clever chap. Not a musical bone in his body, but the five of them together, launching ZTT Records with this insanely bizarre music based entirely on sampled sounds, using the Fairlight computer that they spent fifteen grand buying. We've got it, so we're, we're blooming going to use it. They produce some really really innovative stuff. And particularly for me, a record that absolutely wowed me at the time was was close to the edit. Which has just the most fantastic samples of, of kind of cars starting, percussion, shouts of hey, orchestra stabs and so on very uh, insistent dance beat, incredibly innovative at the time. And I remember 
Uh, I was living in a bedsit in North London, and uh, this would be probably late 83 or early 84. And they had an interview with Art of Noise on Radio 1 on BBC. And it, it was fascinating to me. I've, as you know, I've always loved music technology, and this really felt like I was listening to the future happening in front of my ears. And, and so from that day onwards, I've always been very, very kind of sympathetic and supportive to what Art of Noise and ZTT have been putting out over the years. And I've always been an absolutely massive fan of Trevor Horn, from Buggles through to what he did with even Dollar, wonderful Lexicon of Love by ABC, fantastic Frankie stuff, um, 90125 by Yes, which he did an amazing job on, particularly Owner of a Lonely Heart. And ultimately, my favourite of all of, of the ZTT output is a marvellous record by Propaganda called A Secret Wish. Don't know if you've heard that one. Uh, yeah, that's the uh, that's the sort of quartet, two female singers and two guys. Is that yeah. right? Yeah, the, the, the kind of bastard son of Abba and Crafter. <laughs> Yes, uh, yeah, a kind of uh, ABBA through the looking glass. Yeah, yeah definitely, yeah. and a, a, an absolutely wonderful record. They had a hit single from it called Jewel. The first But the crucial thing was that ZTT's thinking was all about um, kind of bending the sonic picture with technology and remixing things literally to death. Every band they had on their label would have a dozen 12-inch singles of the same of the same track. I've got <laughs> 20 12-inch singles by Frankie Goes to Hollywood, for example. Um, yeah. That was very much their kind of modus operandi. And what was interesting about Propaganda was that in uh, some months after they released Secret Wish, they released a remix album um, called Wishful Thinking, which was basically Paul Morley and one of the other ZTT guys, Steve Lipson, basically bending and twisting the original album around these very brash and abrasive sample dance beats. It's a close brother or sister to History Mix. And um, by the time I, I heard History Mix, it was shortly after I'd bought Wishful Thinking. And so my ears were already attuned to that style of remix. And because I was already, you know, kind of worshipping at the altar of Trevor Horn and Art of Noise, it meant that History Mix went straight into my consciousness. And at the time, I thought it was terrific. Makes uh, sense, guys. I've spoken for a long time there. No, it makes it makes perfect sense, Sean. And thank you for giving us some background. And that, yes, that may explain why it went down a bit easier with you. It was it was a bit of a shock to me, um, <laughs> but uh, but I, you know I, I didn't like it at the time and I haven't haven't really grown to like it. So am I right in thinking that Trevor Horn, apart from crying, which obviously we need to address? Um, didn't have hands-on input to any of the rest of the record, is that correct? That's my understanding. Um, it was literally a collaboration between Kevin Lowell with their tapes and occasional mm. ideas, I think, and JJ Jesselik, who, as I said before, was the kind of programmer uh, behind Art of Noise. He's the guy who, who kind of sampled everything and, and put it all together, sequenced it, if you like, using computers. Yeah. And I think the album came about because, for whatever reason, Kevin and Lowell were talking to Trevor about recording a single or maybe even an album project at the, the Sam West studios that, that Trevor Horn was running at the time. And they, they didn't really have very much material, did they? Uh, they, they tried out 
a piece that was based on channel surfing. Yes, which that, that's right. And uh, that, in fact, you can see the genesis of that all the way back to the Yes video, can't you? Where they're talking about it on the video shoot together. I mean, when you when you sit in a hotel room and you actually change the channel, yep. you, you can make it musical. Yep. We used to sit there when we're on the road for ages, messing yep. out with the channels. And yep. you, you can make your own program. Yep. Yes, absolutely. And of course, that that shoot would have been in '83, I think. Uh, yes. So that was probably the genesis of them coming together for some kind of project. But it was clear that, that Kevin and Lol didn't really have any material at that time. They were experimenting with this idea of recording sounds from, from multi-channel TV and mixing it. I, I just imagine what that would sound like. Uh, pretty unlistenable. Yeah. Um, they'd had the idea in the States where, of course, there's... What did Roger Waters say? Was it 13 channels of shit on my TV to choose from? <laughs> There's a lot. There's oh, yeah. a lot more. There's a lot more than that now. And of course, there were only there were only four channels in the UK. So that project died a death. And as the, as the legend goes, Lowell was strumming uh, the chords to an early version of "Cry." This uh, is the reason I'm. Uh, this is the reason I'm such a big fan of your podcast. I've learned so much in the last <laughs> 10, 15 minutes. I'm just sitting here going, "Oh shit! I didn't know that. I didn't yeah. know that." I know all the artists that you're talking about, but their contributions to each other. I'm. Uh, my head is ready to explode. This is my <laughs> oh, Sorry, Mike. So that's quite no, all right. I, I, I can hear you listening, Mike. I can hear you listening. You know. Let's dive straight into the main tracks on this album. Um, I have to say, I'm with you, Paul, that I, I love the cover of this, or rather the UK cover. Kevin Lola sketching each other, basically, aren't they? Yeah. It, it's, it's, it's brilliant. You're sort of uh, the, the, the two-headed monster doing a kind of uh, mirror self-portrait of each other. It's fantastic. You know, Kev with the flies buzzing around his ears and, and Lol looking like a Neanderthal man. You know, yeah, they're, 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 he's a bit jowly, isn't he, Lol, on this? Yeah, they're, they're unflattering portraits <laughs> that only best friends could get away with doing. And, and you really <laughs> and you sense that. It's a, it's a, lovely, it's a lovely cover. And um, yeah, that's why I remember seeing the artwork for the cover, and that's why I was so disappointed with what was inside <laughs> it because it sounded like it was going to be great, you know. And actually, see, when they were talking about the 25th anniversary, there was some spiel about this is going to be us looking back over our careers, and I thought, oh, this could be incredible because if it goes all the way back to their pre-10CC days, which kind of I suppose it did, because Umbopo's on there somewhere, isn't it? Um, yes. It, you know, it it could be great, but I, I'm I'm afraid it didn't. And you know, I, I just want to bring in like um, they could have made something great because uh, I think the best of the Goldman Godley GGO six songs by far is is Son of Man, mm, yeah, uh, which is of course a prehistory of 10 CC with, with with brilliant music and lyrics. That um, I mean, I wouldn't you know, it didn't have to be like a, a musical, but. Um, you know, if they'd brought their songwriting nous to explain their history uh, or their mythology, like you know Elton John and Bernie Taupin and Captain Fantastic and the Brown Dog, Brown Dog Cowboy, something like that, it, it could have been great. But you know, they, they were just out of songwriting ideas with no intention of going yeah. there. So yeah, you it's ended a shame, up isn't one. it? You're absolutely right, Paul. Son of Man would have been the perfect kind of lead track on this record, wouldn't it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it wasn't music and it wasn't art. But it got to number two in the chart. They've reworked their past in an interesting way, though. I suppose now with our 2020 years on, those kind of 8-bit samples of, of very brash and abrasive drum sounds that pound and pound and pound away at you until you're dead... They sound very dated, don't they? They sound almost like the quality you get off a phone ringtone. I don't 
don't mind the fact that the sounds are dated. I'm, I'm, I'm repeating myself here, but I could, I could forgive that if the, if the intent behind it was, was more them. It's, it's just not them, you know. It's, 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 uh, it's JJ, um, not Godly and Cream. And I think yeah. that, that probably the absence of Kevin and Lowell's active participation. I believe that's what I heard when I first heard the record and, yeah. I, and I didn't engage with it because of that thing. They did they did pop into the studio uh, from time to time, didn't they? <laughs> just to just to chuck some more tapes at him probably. <laughs> yeah. And I, and I I I bet they they threw in the odd ideas. Um you know they, they might have heard a clip and and thought, "Oh yeah, that that will go together." Um, wet rubber soup that sounds a bit naughty you know let's get a a, a bit of a sexual thing going there it was interesting listening to one of the b-sides or or the bonus tracks on body of work there's a track called light me up right uh which i i don't even know where it lives i'm not sure if it was a bonus track on the cd of history mix i don't own the cd i've just got the vinyl um but it's this kind of odd little number with a a vocal intro with these weird harmonies that sound a little bit like out in the cold where they've been processed through a vocoder or something it's really really weird um, right but it the interesting thing about it for me was that it recycles the bass riff that they use <clears throat> on I'm not in love and uh, on on this on history mix and also there's the sound of, 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 of a couple having sex that they use uh, on on wet rubber soup, and I just thought, oh, okay, maybe maybe this track "Light Me Up" was an attempt at an original song uh, as part of the Trevor Horn sessions that they abandoned, and then they just literally took a few elements of it, like the um, the bass riff and and the shagging, uh, and and threaded it in in amongst this sort of remix. I don't know really, as if anybody cares apart from me. Um, <laughs> well, good. good. Good hypothesis, I like that. Yeah. Excuse me, do you fellows have any idea who the female is singing on this tune? I mean, she's uh, she adds to the sexiness of the song. Such funky groove, you know, um, scorching. She's, but I don't know who it is. It doesn't say anything on my uh, American release. Same here. I I, I absolutely agree, Mike. Uh, she's got a fantastic voice. But this has got to be the worst annotated record sleeve of all time. Apart from the fact that I love I love the sleeve to death, um, apart from the kind of the very corporate twenty five logo in the bottom left corner, uh, which says, as you said, Paul, this is our important twenty fifth anniversary of being a partnership. Important things are going to happen. It's not. But as far as I'm, I'm concerned, as far as I'm aware, rather that there isn't an inner sleeve, and the only information that that I had for thirty five years was the. The, the very spurious information on on the label, which doesn't doesn't even mention uh, participants apart from JJ Jesselik, uh, Trevor Horn, and and obviously the the four ten CC boys, mm. um, and bizarrely here's here's a thing for you a little bit of trivia, and I'm not sure how true this is mathematically or anything, but what is the most sampled album on on History Mix? Oh, that's okay. a great trivia question. That's oh. a really good question. It's a Shawnee trivia question, so it's probably not accurate at all. Um, the first album, Rubber Bullets? Or? It, it, that might be a close second. It might even be up there. It's not consequences, is it? I think it is. One, two, three, four... <laughs>
consequences, and, and one of the reasons that I, I argued in favour for History Mix at the time, and still on balance argue in favour of it, is because it's kind of, at last, a public acknowledgement that consequences actually existed. And uh, the fact that Peter Cook, as Haig, starts the album and mm, says... Yeah, um, I like that, yeah. Uh, he's seated now. Yes. Uh, you know, you know, lead me in with a count of 17, etc. I really like yeah. that element. And, and there are lots and lots of bits of consequences that thread all the way through these tracks. In fact, most of the tracks. I like that. But bizarrely, and, and this is something that kind of pisses me off about the record, is that looking at the label as I was the other night, I was looking for credits for consequences. They credit uh, Rubber Bullets, Minestrone, I'm Not In Love cry business is business how dare you neanderthal man this sporting life one night in paris the dean and i dynamic tension uh which isn't a track obviously and umbopo yeah yeah um, but the only mention of consequences on the whole album despite the fact that we hear minutes and minutes and minutes worth of consequences the only referenced consequences is the word wet Wet, as in the flood. As in the flood. Yeah. So that they're almost Uh still in denial of it. I mean, I don't know how true that is, but why not? Why not credit these tracks on the label? It seems a bit pathetic. Well, they they have still have and and certainly had a pretty complex relationship with our favourite triple album, didn't they? They certainly did, and I, I actually have a lot of fun still listening to this record just trying to spot all the samples I mean wet, wet rubber soup apart from the, the obvious ones we've mentioned you get little bits of sand in my face coming in uh, you get uh, even the, the, the twangy guitar from sandwiches of you ding, ding, yeah. ding, ding. <laughs> yeah. you know that that wonderful thing effects processing is is really really good so i guess i'm i'm seeing it as a as a production number um from a stable of studio musicians that i've always admired and liked so for me it was another interesting remix remix album from the ztt stable what well, one thing i want to ask you then sean since you you've invested a lot in this album and you know it well is there any parts of those songs and i'm not sure there is that show that they were using the multi-tracks or are they just getting them from the masters? I could, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. The, 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 the little bits they're using, they could just come from the re- original records, couldn't they? Sure, no, I, I, absolutely. And, and yes, there is. Um, Kev says on the liner uh-huh. notes, I think, for Body of Work, that that somehow J.J. Jesselik got hold of the vocal tracks from I'm Not In Love, uh, which could have been... Oh. Which could have been from... Uh, the, the tape library that we've seen the, the session sheets for. We've seen multiple tapes that Eric provided for live gigs with the, with the vocal tracks of I'm Not In Love on, for example. Um, so they may oh, well have... Going... Go on. Yeah, I'm just going down a rabbit hole here, though, because by that stage, 85, uh, well, uh, Strawberry South was closed, Strawberry North was, was still open. I thought Eric could... Had taken a lot of those tapes away by then, but maybe maybe that only happened after the closure of the studio. Maybe they were still sitting there in Stockport. Yeah, maybe they just you know phoned Harvey and, and Harvey contacted Eric and Eric you know had the tapes copied or something. <laughs> When they bring in the How Dare You clips on The Dare You Man, which is a track that I really quite enjoy on side two, yeah. um, you hear isolated harpsichord parts from How Dare You. 
okay. unless okay. he's EQ'd it in a way to kind of get rid of the you know the drums and guitars and things. But I, I think we actually hear the separate parts there, which is quite interesting. Obviously, from for a geek like me, it's nice to hear those yeah. things kind of float in and float out. A bit like mm-hmm. hearing the, the I'm Not In Love parts naked for the first time ever. Um, that, that was special for me, hearing the, the album for yeah. the first time. Hearing mm-hmm. ma- massive swathes of I'm Not In Love in all its naked beauty. I thought that was fantastic. That sort of brings on uh, brings you on to another question. I wonder what Eric and Graham thought of the album because they, you know, they they're credited and they presumably received some royalties from it. From well, the, they, would have, the they would have done, yeah. They'd have got you know almost half uh, half the royalties. I'd have thought. Yeah, yeah. And this album, actually, unlike concurrent Ten CC albums, did chart, didn't it? Yes, it did. So they, they probably made more more money <laughs> off of this project than they, than they did off their kind of any you know any of their albums released at the same time, which is which is a little bit of a, a kick, I suppose. But yeah, that must have really pissed them off, and they certainly didn't make any money out of me at the time. I bought this album the year after for about seventy five p at oh, the well. uh, record and tape exchange in Berwick Street in London. Uh, yeah, right. so I cheated, I'm afraid. Any other tracks, Mike, on, on this album that you enjoy or not enjoy? Just the obvious. Um, Golden Boy, Sabre Mountain. Uh, I'm wondering if we have the same song lists from the American version. Because the American Outer Sleeve is just uh, two photographs of them from the Cry video. Yes. And it's, the, it's Inside Sleeve that has the drawings. Oh, I don't even know if they have it. There's very little on this album to get any kind of information from. Yes, well, that's like the UK version, but the the, the album sleeves yeah. couldn't have been more different. And I think the track the, the track listings were incredibly different, Mike. The UK one has two tracks on side one, uh, Wet Rubber Soup, and then a kind of cry, I'm not in love hybrid. And then on side two, you've got four uh, remixy tracks, Expanding the Business, The Dare You Man, Humdrum Boys in Paris, and Mountain Tension. That's it. There are no none of those kind of B-sides or bonus tracks. Oh, okay. It's totally different then. Well, I'm glad I bought it. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> I'm certainly glad yeah. to own it. So, yes, Mike, can I, is, this, is, this a, is this a vinyl record from yes, the time that you're talking about? What? Yes, it, yes, it is. Oh, my word. Yes, I too is... Cry, Light Me Up, An Englishman in New York, Sable Mountain for Me, and Golden Boy. And what are the, what are the remix tracks on it? Just Wet Rubber Soup on side one. Wow, so you've not got Expanding uh, the Business or any of the others? No. We're, we're talking about a completely different album. My research <laughs> is wanting. Thank goodness Mike is here, otherwise he wouldn't have realised this. That's but right. Th- that explains... That might explain why Mike likes it because it's only got one of those tracks instead of six, right? On the on the on the British. That would explain it. Yeah, history. Yeah, right. Okay. Well, how how extraordinary! There's me very lazily assuming that History Mix Volume One was the same album but with bonus tracks in the states. Crikey! Yes, yeah. I mean we often see that, don't we, Mike? That the American versions of albums are, are so different from oh, yeah. the British counterparts. Oh yeah, I, I hate that too. They screwed up so many Beatle albums oh, in crikey, their proper yeah. sequence. And why did oh, they that's... do that? Why did they do it? 
Well, to get more albums out. Correct. That's why they did that's why Capital did it, because they were able to release, you know, X amount of albums compared with X minus one amount of albums in, in the UK. That's why they did it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I guess the like I, I guess these remix tracks were very much more Europe friendly, weren't they? Possibly, yeah. When you know, when you think of the success of of electro pop and the, and the new breed of mid '80s electronic pop, um, that was you know much more popular in on the radio in in the clubs in Britain than than, than in America certainly. Um, I mean, go on, Paul. Sorry. No, I was going to ask you, Mike. Yeah, those those artists Sean mentioned before, like Frankie Goes to Hollywood, being the sort of commercial blockbusters in the uk but art and noise and propaganda and the people around the ztt stable did they make any impact in the states uh frankie goes to hollywood certainly and somewhat art of noise uh because of the max headroom guy that's in the video yeah oh yeah american invention and uh they did the peter gun they won a grammy didn't they for the peter gun instrumental okay I'd forgotten about that. Yeah, and uh, ABC did they did they strike any hits over? Oh yes, yep. yes. Uh, Look of love. Yeah. Uh, what the hell was the other one? I like them. I like Poison, their Poison stuff Arrow. Yes, Poison Arrow charted. Yep. Uh, that's all I can recall at the moment. But yeah. So so they, so some of those bands were having success, but it was a basically we're looking at two incredibly different albums here. Well, I like mine, so I'm going to keep it. <laughs> yeah, and I, and I kind of I kind of like mine, but for for but for bad reasons, really. Although, actually, if if truth be known, chaps, the, there's there's actually only three tracks that I really like on on my version of the album. We'll leave the wonderful hybrid of "I'm Not in Love" and "Cry" till later. But right. one other track really pleases me every time it it kicks in. It, it comes out of. The, the sort of grinding, expanding the business and humdrum boys in Paris, which seem to go on forever to beat you around the head, um, is the Dare You Man. And I love, you suddenly get this sort of poppy groove, that, that, that very kind of motorized European sampled groove. Um, and then you've got How Dare You and Neanderthal Man overlaid together in, I think, a really brilliant way. They use the middle eight of Neanderthal Man, with um, vocal samples from from the girl who who speaks on on the start of the How Dare You track. Not sure if that's Sue or maybe Kathy from The Office. Not sure. Dare I you. think it was Dare Sue. You. I think it was Sue, wasn't it? I've seen that. Bit yeah, I've, I've seen that down. somewhere. But, but it's really nicely used, and they've obviously used the multi-tracks of her voice, Paul, for that one. And they just right, what what right, JJ yeah. Jesselik does is just break everything down into these tiny little Lego bricks, and then just throws them together, um, sometimes randomly, and sometimes just to kind of make slightly witty jokes. Um, all the way through the album, there's a kind of the, the a counterpoint conversation between these samples um we'll come on to that shortly but with this one it's really really nice apart from the how dare you samples and the harpsichord parts the neanderthal man rhythm kind of chugging along you've got stabs from the end of blint's tune coming in as well that really just punctuate it nicely got oh yeah from sand in your face you've got graham singing is he gonna buy from one night in paris um, mm-hmm. and and you've got from this sporting life you've got the crowd down below singing we're waiting <laughs> and then this lovely kind of this two-way conversation between kevin and don't hang up going no 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 graham singing is he gonna buy kevin going no 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 and for me there's just this kind of quite puerile humor this kind of ping pong between samples that is actually 
thoroughly enjoyable on this track. And, it, and it's one of the, the small number of, of instances on this record where I think, yeah, JJ Jesselik did a good thing there and, and this is a success. Him to review an album he hasn't heard, yeah. And, and, and yeah. this is a lot of me talking, and um, you know, because well, I'm, think... you know, I'm interested. And, and Mike, poor, poor Mike, you've not heard any of the fucking things. <laughs> I think for me, easily the best track and, and the most powerful track on the whole of History Mix album, for obvious reasons, is, is that wonderful hybrid between I'm Not in Love and Cry. And what you've got there is large, generally unbutchered sections of I'm Not In Love that segue really beautifully into one of the most gorgeous singles of the 80s, in my opinion, which is Cry. And, and I think this, this track is, is really tastefully done. Even though the, the drum track is slightly monotonous, incredibly of its time, very, very dated, I really love the way you get Kathy's voice saying big big boys don't cry, an insistent drum part, and then all these individual parts from I'm Not In Love kind of drifting in. You've got Lowell's piano interspersed with, with Kev's voice singing very, very high, make me want to cry, which I think is, is, is really quite moving. And it's lovely to hear so many of the vocal parts from I'm Not In Love laid bare like this. I think it's really effective. And um, I think almost out of respect uh, to I'm Not In Love, JJ Jesselik uses the middle eight of that song almost wholesale. You, you hear everything from the piano, you hear Graham's bass, you hear the vocals, the effects, and, and so on. And, and that forms just this amazing prelude into that that fantastic very very trevor horn crescendo of synth chords that lead you into cry and for me that's one of my very, very favourite 10cc moments. That segue is just utterly gorgeous. One of my favourite records of all time, segueing into a, a song that complements it actually really beautifully. And I think Cry, Paul and Mike is an absolutely superb record. Is Cry their last hit that they really ever had a really big hit, Cry? Yeah, uh, yes. yeah in, I think in, that's about in, it. In, in the UK and the US, uh, in fact, it was their only proper in the US. Um, so that probably means worldwide it was their biggest seller. Um, and it, yes, it was their last. They had three hits in the UK, essentially. They had uh, Under Your Thumb, Wedding Bells and Cry. And although it uh -huh. didn't ride as high in the charts cry it was top 20 but not top 10 yeah. it's it's probably their best known song um i was looking at um the spotify downloads mm. just before we came on air here and it's got 10 times as many downloads as any of their other solo songs yeah just as some kind of indication yeah and uh, my da my daughter Clementine, who's into music but you know doesn't really know about Godly and Cream. I've played her a couple of tracks as, as a matter of you know to, to to see what she thought, and and she knew Cry, uh, not just the video. She knew the song, and so mm -hmm. it's the one song of of Kevin Lowell's that's really kind of entered the public consciousness. And yes. I'm really 
pleased about that because mm. it's a masterpiece, I think. And it, it me, was me, great. me too. I, I, th- I think it's a wonderful record. I was just going to say, well, it was a huge hit in the United States. Uh, uh, for me, a winner right out of the box. I loved it before I ever saw the uh, cutting edge video. It was a sweet sound, unlike anyone else's. I can't say, oh, that reminds me of so and so. It's Godling Cream at their unique and uh, exceptional best. Mm. You know, that's. Yeah. Same here, Mike. I'm glad that you say that you heard it before you saw the video because that was my experience too. Because yeah. because the video is so strong and it's is so tied now visually to the to the mm-hmm. to the sound. Uh, I, I do remember clearly that you know I kind of heard this song. Uh, I was hearing it on the radio and I was and then it dawned on me after a play or two that it was Kevin singing. It must be Godly and Cream and. Um, you know, it was a it was a hit on the radio. I think sometime before you saw that amazing video. So, mm. I, you know, I was pleased about that in a way because it really it does stand alone as as a terrific song in its own right. really does and, I, and the, the production of it is absolutely astounding I mean you know my admiration for, for Trevor Horn's production and, yeah. and and you get so many trademarks of his early mid 80s production on this with those wonderful thick synth sounds um, where he plays chords that, that seem to have about 11 notes in them with mm. the, these very kind of thick layered sounds I think that's absolutely fantastic but for me, instrumentally, what what really sets it apart as a, as a classic is is Lowell's guitar playing, and his guitar composition. Kev, when we met him, Paul was so complimentary about Lowell's guitar work on this. It's so so subtle. There's uh, just these, as Kevin was describing, these wonderfully fluid guitar chords, wonderful kind of guitar licks, these sort of little arpeggios that Lowell puts over the top. Um, yeah, and it. it Everything complements each other so subtly. There is a a kind of a standard song in there with a a gorgeous verse and a gorgeous, powerful chorus. But the arrangement of it is just so powerful, so subtle, so classy. Very 80s, but but not 80s in a in 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 a tacky way. It's 80s in a um, where technology is kind of conspiring to produce something of real class. Sean, I just want to go back there where you said there's a, a verse. I don't think there is. There's just an A section. And that might be why, uh, and I think if, uh, just to clarify here for anybody that doesn't know, this is a very old song. It was written in 1972 mm. and, and, and must have been presented to 10CC. And for whatever reason, wow. Kevin, Roll, Kevin Lowell didn't think of it as a finished track. Uh, and maybe that's because it really just has that A section, but it's so it's so gorgeous and powerful that when you add Kev's, you know, stunning vocal, mm. and this, this is this is one of his all-time vocals because yeah. he really he really gets his teeth into a, a brilliant song. He doesn't kind of over sing or push his voice that that you know the glorious tenor voice and the, yeah. the range is. Range he employs is, is astounding. He sings it straight, if you like, but yep. he sings it absolutely beautifully. And uh, so the, the song was always there. But, you know, maybe um, in their kind of <clears throat> mode of 1972, you know, where they were talking about Sand in My Face and the Dean and I and that kind of period where there were songs with sections flying all over the place. This, this didn't need anything else. Maybe they thought it was unfinished, 
but, just, but it turns out it wasn't. So yeah. they, they went back into the well and used it, and, and it was brilliant. Sure. Maybe Eric and Graham didn't like it because they didn't think of it. <laughs> did you did you see what I did there? Yeah, I sorry. but no, you're you're absolutely right. It, it's kind of almost almost like a half song, but perfect, yes. perfect in that form. That's right. Uh, it'd be interesting to know, um, again, something we maybe should have asked, but whether it was presented to NTC or maybe Kevin Lowell just thought it was unfinished and so the other two guys never got to hear it. It's, it's such mm. a beautiful melody. Must be Lowell's melody again, I think, because it's got that ascending, reaching up to the heavens thing that, he, that we see coming from him so often, particularly in those kind of... 1970, 71, 72. Yeah. You know, <laughs> that's lovely, yeah, isn't it? It's, it's such, a lo- <laughs> such a nice ascending line. And and it was Lowell, yeah. apparently, it's, it was Lowell strumming it in the studio with with JJ Jesselik and Trevor Horn. When, when they oh, when they kind of, when they'd run out of gas with the idea for the channel surfing thing and any, anything, right. any, any other crap that was kind of lying around, it was Lowell strumming it in the studio. It, it, it was obviously kind of lurking in Lowell's subconscious, wasn't it? Yeah, but, I think that says a lot. I think he must have had this song and maybe subconsciously thought, this is too good never to do something with. Maybe now's the time. And, you know, it just, it just everything fit together beautifully. A superb production, and whenever I listen to it, and, and it always just gives me utter joy to listen to it, it reminds me of why I love Godly and Cream, why I love 10CC, and why I love Trevor Horn. It's just, it's it's three of my favourite artists right there for four minutes of just absolute sumptuous heaven. Yeah, they're in, they're in perfect harmony, the three of them. I mean, Trevor Horn is definitely 33% of this, this record. It's, you know, it's, it's a brilliant production. And that helps to sustain, you know, this, uh, the, um, the fact that there's only really one musical idea going throughout. Yes. Um, yes, yeah, it's, 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 it's strange, isn't it? It's, it's, a, it's almost like a, a very minimalist musical idea with, with a different kind of production... There might just be nothing there, actually. Yeah. Um, but, exactly. but but somehow, it, but they transform it. The the, the four of them, I and mean, we we've got to include JJ Jesselik in this as well because he he programmed okay. the the rudimentary backing track that do goo do goo do goo do goo that chuggy kind of bass thing. The four of them okay. together um, created something sumptuous out of almost almost something nebulous, didn't they? Yes. That's it in a nutshell. Yeah. Marvellous record. I just would like to add that uh, uh, Paul used the word astounding, and that's a great uh, term to use. As far as uh, the United States... If people ask me, you know, who's your favorite besides the Beatles? Well, uh, Godly and Cream. Uh, after a pregnant pause, I get, oh, cry. <laughs> it's like they know nothing else, but they do know cry mm. and love it. So At least they do, Mike. At least yes, they do. Yes. Uh, I mean, 10CC sometimes don't even get recognized as a name tagged with I'm not in love. Everybody knows mm-hmm. I'm not in love in the States. But not every, not everybody knows the name 10CC, do they? No, that's true here. Yeah, which fills me <laughs> fills me with disappointment and horror, actually. In a way, yeah, I but, yeah. it was kind of my you know my thing. I didn't care that no one else knew. I, I just kind of <laughs> thought, yeah, that this is my thing. You know? Yeah. Yes, I know, and we, we, we've kind of enjoyed living in silos for the last 40 years, haven't we? Yes. So, that, so Mike, so this was, I know it was a kind of a, a top 20 hit, but 
it sounds like its influence went wider than that in the States. Was it used in, in like, TV ads or uh, TV? Miami Vice, the, the television show Miami Vice used it. I know that. Yeah. Okay. And I'm right. sure that right. helped it, uh, it helped its popularity. Uh, right. Again, it was such a great song, though. People try. People wanted to find out who it was, you know, having no idea their catalog of work. But, yeah. Uh, I'm so glad that, uh, you know, we talk about the fact that uh, in the UK, at least, Tennessee had three number one singles uh, and three out of the four lead vocalists got to sing on the number one single, but not Kevin. And I know this is a wasn't literally a number one, but it's a kind of de facto number one. And I'm so glad that he got to sing you know with his fantastic yeah. voice on 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 a on a standard essentially yeah this that's a great point pro- paul very great point because kevin godley actually to me is the consummate vocalist of that band he is so beautiful so wonderful yeah strong yeah i i yeah. agree i agree he and he and eric have got uh you know voices that could you know that could float and sink a thousand ships haven't they they are they are one, wonderful what just wonderful singers when you spoke to kevin did he mention whether they thought cry was going to be as big as it was or it were even a hit or did they uh, well, was a it a surprise question. I don't think I don't think we asked him that. I'm uh, yeah, sure I don't recall. Remember. I don't I think don't we think did, Paul. To be honest, we didn't, did we? We sh- maybe should have. But uh... and I'm sitting here actually looking at, at the 12 inch single of, of Cry. I don't know. I, I think I guess it's pointless to ask you, Paul, if you own it. You won't. <laughs> no, I don't. No. <laughs> um, Mike, do you, are you a collector of 12 inch singles? They don't sell many here, so no, I don't have. I yeah, might have one or two. I've got a, a bit of a thing about 12-inch singles. I mean, I've, I've already mentioned that I've got about 20 Frankie Goes to Hollywood remixes, which just shows the, the level of my, uh, I don't know, call it obsession, call it geekiness. Yeah, guilty, guilty as charged. But, uh, but this one, it's got an extended version of Cry remixed by Nigel Gray, which is interesting. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. I think it's the alt version that ends up on the, the Body of Work box set. But the B-side, maybe this will be the briefest insert of any track ever on any of our podcasts, Paul, uh, Love Bombs. Either of you aware of it, yeah. know it, familiar with it? I- Yes, I've heard it, but I, I can't recall it right now. Yeah, listen, it doesn't matter. If you've got Cry on the A side, you can get away with anything. <laughs> Good yeah. point. Well, yeah, you think Phil Spector used to just stick instrumentals on the B side, didn't he? Yeah. So, yeah, if a genius can do that, and uh, if, if Godly and Cream want to just bang a bit of manic percussion uh, and a whispered rap, it's just noise, basically. Um, and I don't even know where we're going to put this in the podcast because it's it's almost <laughs> it's almost not worth mentioning because it's so shit yeah I don't know I don't know thank you so much Mike for your contribution to this one and I'm sorry that we've we spent so long talking about what turned out to be two entirely different records and i had no idea that history mix volume one in the uk was so different to history mix volume two in the u.s but we got there in the end thank you mike yes we did well my pleasure um although i have to admit the uh wet rubber suit medley has lost a bit of its luster for me finding out that someone else is responsible for the uh, uh, jesselnik was was the guy's name did you say jj jesselnik Yes, I thought it was Guy Lane Cream's creative input there. But it's still, it's very, very creative, very interesting. And thank you very much for having me on this podcast. 
Well, it's been a, it's been our absolute pleasure, Mike. Thank you so much for joining us. And Paul, I I, I imagine your appetite for History Mix Volume Two is fairly slim. <laughs> it's as slim as one of those faces in the video of the Golden Boy when they turn sideways. <laughs> 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 On that note. You've been listening to The Consequences Podcast, produced by Paul McNulty and Sean McCreevy. Thanks for listening.